If you are invested in ESG in 2022, you are a massive loser because you are divested from energy. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. Maybe not a fringe conspiracy theory after all. Welcome to Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. I'm Joe Arnold. Kevin Grout is here, Jared Crawford, and the aforementioned Scott Jennings joining us on location. He is our correspondent with palm trees behind him in West Palm Beach, Florida. Mr. Jennings. Mr. Arnold, Kevin, Jared, good to see you all, and uh, glad to be with you on another episode of Flyover Country. I felt like I was in Flyover Country today. I was out in the out in the wilderness today. You saw some alligators, I understand. <laughs> I did. I, I visited two national parks, uh, Biscayne Bay National Park, which is mostly, I learned today, actually underwater. The actual park itself is mostly under the ocean. Uh, on I didn't purpose? go snorkeling. <laughs> Yeah, the coral reefs and oh, I see. so on and so forth. Is it actually t- um, is it is it tipping over like Guam into the ocean <laughs> or, and yeah. capsized? Uh, I didn't get to go snorkeling, but they do tell me there's like 50 shipwrecks within the park. Uh, oh, so cool. that's kind of cool. That's cool. Uh, but then, perhaps more impressively, I then drove over. It's about a half hour away. I then drove over to the Everglades National Park. And you can't believe how close the alligators get to the actual walking trail. Like they say, walk over here, walk down this nature trail. There was an alligator literally like adjacent to the walking trail. If he had wanted to come up there and have a snack, I don't know what we would have done about it, to be honest. So that was pretty cool. Become a snack. I saw several gators. I saw several gators. There was one by the trail. There was one sort of laying in the grass. There was one out in the water kind of waiting. It It was pretty neat. Pretty amazing what they've uh, over the years, over the last, you know, in our at least in my parents' lifetime, the last, uh, you know, 75, 80 years or so, the you know, the Florida's just transformed from a ecological and you know the, the Everglades, Everglades itself. Did you, did you go on an airport ride at all, Scott, or just walk? I didn't. We just walked. They had the um, uh, Ahinga Nature Trail, so we went out to the one of the locations where you can kind of and they and they have a, a very nice walkway. It's like planked, and so you walk you know, out and around this sawgrass and swampy area. I mean, I saw all manner of birds, these alligators, uh, but the gators really stole the show. I mean, just to, when you go to the zoo and they're like behind glass, you go out there and they're just right there. <laughs> and, uh, so and you feel, uh, feel pretty amazing when you're, is, when you're sort of two more national parks for you. You've got to be getting close to getting the full circuit. Oh, well, I, Oh, there's, there's a lot more to go. I, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I picked up several last weekend at President's Day in New York City that I had never really clicked off because they had been closed for COVID. Teddy Roosevelt's uh, boyhood home. I went to Federal Hall finally uh, and did that. Uh, I went to Alexander Hamilton's house, the Grange. Uh, Took two of my kids out to the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island, which I had been to before. Uh, But I picked some stamps up up in New York. I picked two stamps up out uh, in Florida. And uh, in a month, uh, I'm doing a driving tour in Virginia. And we're going to hit a whole bunch of battlefields in different places. George Washington's birthplace, Williamsburg, Yorktown. So, and I've not not picked up any of those. So, I'm I'm racking them up, Kev. I'm trying to knock it out. So, let's go to Washington, D.C. now, where they have some national parks that uh, Scott has visited as well. In fact, you you and I, Scott, went to one place where they, I think we just have them fill out a, like a whole chain of them there. But I want to go to, to, to Congress because this is we're recording this 
on Wednesday evening at 9.36 Eastern Time. And just hours ago, the U.S. Senate voted to overturn the Labor Department rule, which uh, permits fiduciary retirement fund accounts to consider climate change, corporate governance, other factors when making investments, rather than what's going to make the most money for their clients. And so this is... And Andy Barr, who, of course, is a longtime uh, uh, finance committee member and, and really a, a, a leading voice in, in Congress on issues of, of this matter, uh, took up this issue and the bill to reverse the Biden Labor Department rule. Congress must act to block the Biden administration's recent rule that greenlights so-called ESG investing in millions of Amer- Americans' retirement plans plowing them into less diversified, higher fees, and lower-performing portfolios at precisely the time that we need to maximize financial security for Americans approaching retirement. So let's consider the facts. According to a recent Wall Street Journal report, ESG funds carry 43% higher fees than non-ESG funds. That's what they want. They want Americans to be forced into higher fee funds. A recent study from NYU and the University of Southern California found that over the past five years, global ESG funds have underperformed the broader market by 250 basis points per year, an average of 2.6% lower return than non-ESG funds. And this stands to reason, because ESG funds are by design less diversified. This is investing 101. When you discriminate against energy stocks and you are heavy in tech, when you're in a tech sell-off and when energy performs the market, who loses? The American retail investor who has unwittingly invested in these fraudulent, uh, cancerous funds. Kevin, Andy Barr was on fire. Wow, that is some fire. Really, really good. Uh, and he's making great points here. He, he is saying that the Biden administration is under the radar through some rule that nobody's ever read, changing the way Americans are saving for retirement and putting their money without them knowing most of the time right. in these worse accounts, accounts with higher fees, like he said, and accounts that are less likely to make them money. He's taking it, 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 it's a complete retirement debacle that could have affected millions of Americans. Scott's in politics here. Two Democrats crossing party lines to vote with the Republicans in the U.S. Senate, uh, Joe Manchin and John Tester. And now Joe Biden's first veto will be against people's retirement accounts. Yeah, um, it's it's really noteworthy that both Tester and Manchin uh, are on the ballot in 2024 and obviously um, are looking for ways to separate themselves from Joe Biden, I think something like 150 million Americans have $12 trillion invested in retirement accounts. And the reality is when you hand over your money to a retirement uh, plan, you expect to try to get as much money out of that as you can over a long period of time so that when you do retire, uh, you can do so knowing you've got enough to live. And and I think the Republicans here were onto something, and that is if you allow uh, fund managers to pursue liberal causes, some of them may be liberals, and they may want to pursue those causes. I mean, there are people out there uh, who uh, have forgotten what the purpose of a corporation or a capitalist system is, and that is to make money. That's it. I don't need, I don't need my retirement fund guy to change the world. I just need him to <laughs> fix up my retirement. That's it. 
And if I want to change the world, I'll take my money when I pull it out and I'll do that. But I don't need somebody else doing that on my behalf. So I think this was a great and righteous thing the Republicans did. Andy Barr, friend of the pod, uh, did a great thing here. Um, he's a, uh, a subcommittee chair on finance committee now in the House, really moving up in the world. You can see how aggressive he was on this issue. This is a great thing for him to have been a leader on. And I really think Biden here, once again, Jared, uh, shows us just how beholden he is to the left. I mean, for the guy who ran as the middle-of-the-road Democrat, the deal-maker, the I'm-not-too-extreme-one-way-or-the-other, to be beholden to these people who want to take your retirement money and invest it in, uh, you know, liberal cults as opposed to, you know, better returns. I tell you, it's one. It's just another piece of evidence that Joe Biden is captive to the radical left. Yeah, we've got some other clips from Andy Barr's speech. I don't know how much we'll, of it we'll play to do, but I think at one point he says, you know, like, look, most Americans don't know what ESG is yet. Maybe they've heard of it or seen it in some tweets or Facebook posts and things like that. It is this kind of like fringe radical left thing. We think of like CRT. They like to do this of just like sneaking things into, you know, large parts of American culture, whether it be our finance systems or education. And all of a sudden people start to catch on. They're like, Holy crap. No, this is no, what are we doing here? And so I think Andy Barr and a lot of other Republicans who are sounding the alarm early on here and saying like, no, 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 we are catching this before you try to infiltrate all of all of banking or all of retirement or however all these things work. Um, and and so, again, it is this weird thing where. Uh, a Democrat three years ago would have never have ever thought of having this position. And now it's sort of mainstream among, among Democrats. It's, it's, it's a really strange shift. And, and just to be clear about what happened, you know, this again is another insidious use of the bureaucracy. So Joe Biden's administration and the labor department simply made a rule. This wasn't a law that was passed. This was a rule. And then the Congress came in to overturn the rule. Biden's going to veto it, of course. But if you're wondering, uh, again, about Joe Biden and his view of executive power, here's another example of him using uh, executive authority to really affect massive stuff. Obviously, the Supreme Court took up the uh, student loan issue this week, and it sounds like they're skeptical and may throw that out. That, you know, that dealt with. Well, you know, $400 billion or so uh, that, that Biden's trying to wipe off the books. Wipe, I say that <laughs> tongue in cheek. But in this case, you're talking about a Labor Department rule that could have affected uh, uh, um, all this money, trillions of dollars, uh, uh, $12 trillion that Americans. I mean, it's just it's chilling to me. It's troubling that Joe Biden thinks the power to impact $12 trillion or $400 billion or whatever uh, should be fully vested in essentially one person. And it's to me, it's just really antithetical to our system. Uh, and I think the American people need to understand Joe, Bi- Joe Biden has become something of a of a maniac when it comes to executive power. And it's not just COVID. It's not just COVID mm-hmm. emergency stuff. This is this is another example of that. And it's a really smart tactical play by the Republicans here, too. They use this 
process that you might not have heard of and most people shouldn't have heard of called the Congressional Review Act that lets them fast track these bills across the floor when they're specifically targeting regulations uh, from the bureaucracy. So it was able to pass through the House. It was one of the first things this new Republican House majority did. But then in the Senate, that's obviously still controlled by the Democrats, it gets this special privilege and gets to come to the floor even if Chuck Schumer doesn't want it. He was out in the Wall Street Journal today with an op-ed saying he's going to vote against it, comparing it to communist China and a bunch of other garbage. Uh, but they're able to bypass him, and it only needed a simple majority. So like Joe said, we got two Repu uh, two Democrats to uh, join with the Republicans to pass it. Uh, Andy Barr was so great on the floor today. Do we have some more Andy Barr that we can play? Yes, this is great. So the, the line here, too, li listen for the massive loser line, which is a great line here. The gentlelady from North Carolina is recognized. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I yield two minutes to the gentleman from Kentucky, Mr. Barr. The gentleman from Kentucky is recognized for two minutes. I thank the chair, and I don't know if my colleagues on the other side of the aisle don't understand the existing law and what this resolution does and the Department of Labor's new rule is, or they're, whether they're just trying to confuse uh, the listeners and the watchers here today. Because the truth is, this is not material for the vast majority of Americans. The studies show that most Americans don't even know what ESG is. And to the extent Americans do find it material, nothing in this resolution prohibits an American from allocating their capital the way they want to. But what this resolution will do is stop the Department of Labor from coercing Americans into lower-performing, higher-fee, less-diversified, politicized funds. We must stop the politicization of allocation of capital. And when my friend from Illinois says, well, why are Republicans picking losers? Really? Really? In 2022, the S&P 500 energy sector ended the year a whopping 59% higher than where it started amid a brutal bear market in which the S&P 500 overall lost 20%. If you are invested in ESG in 2022, you are a massive loser because you are divested from energy. Stop the politicization of capital. If you want to give Americans freedom to choose what is material for them in investing, vote against the Department of Labor rule, which would conceal and what of course the Department did, of Scott. Labor they is did doing. Vote against it. They did. And, you know, I was thinking about Andy's speeches and um, sort of the overall, you know, issue we're dealing with here. This is, this is you know, another – people say all the time, well, how, how do you even define woke – now we have woke investing. I mean, we have, you know, sort of a woke cultural agenda that we sort of talk about a lot. This is this is wokeness, radical, corrosive wokeness come to something come into something very basic to America, which is the idea that you can take money that you earned and invest it in a market. And now you have the radical wokesters showing up and saying we're even going to interrupt that with our radicalism. And watching the Congress um, take a stand against it, I think, is good pushback on just another corner of the overall woke agenda. But, the, you know, the woke agenda is not limited to, you know, some of these just hot button cultural issues. It's seeping into everything. And the Congress took a stand against it. But right, but Joe Biden is all too happy to implement it. And I just I don't know who we're going to nominate for president in 24, but it strikes me um putting this woke agenda front and center and making people understand your money is at risk. Your future is at risk. Your children are at risk. The schools are at risk. 
so much is at risk now, even the prospects of your own retirement. So I, I hope I hope this issue uh, continues to generate attention because I think if people knew what was going on and the Republicans are bringing it forward, thankfully, they'd be really pissed about it. Kevin, to your point, from a tactical standpoint, and of course, it's also, you know, this following priorities and values. The fact that this ends up being the first thing that's voted on yep. is quite something because I think a lot of people were thinking they're, they're only going to bring up things that are on the way on the fringe extreme right, you know, the things that are Marjorie Taylor Greene or whomever else you want to fill in the blanks there. But here's something that actually won the majorities in both the House and the Senate. And now you're putting, I don't know if it's Joe Biden in a box, but you're actually, you know, but obviously the, the, the first thing here is to say normal Americans voted for something and now you have. This, you're, this. you're making him put his money where his woke mouth is because yeah. uh, I believe this will be his first veto. His first veto right. will be take, taking money away from retirement accounts of Americans. You said 150 million Americans. And you know, you know what's interesting about this mansion voting with the Republicans on this and Biden vetoing it. This is another example that lays bare the weakness and ineptitude of uh, Joe Manchin. I mean the. I mean, the reality is, you know, he talks a big game about being a deal maker and about you know, sort of being the bridge and so on and so forth. And at the end of the day, they don't listen to this guy. <laughs> I mean, you know, they they did they they strung him along long enough to get the one thing they wanted, and that was the vote on the Inflation Reduction Act. That's it. And then ever since then, the permitting on the pipelines totally disregarded. His views on this ESG stuff totally disregarded. He's a spent force. There's no more reason for Joe Manchin to exist in the U.S. Senate. Joe Biden's the one who's who sent that message. And so uh, I hope the people of West Virginia who have heretofore been ex- – it's been explained to them how vital Joe Manchin is in moderating the Democratic Party and, and being a bridge between Democrats. Now, there, there's no bridge here. He's a spent force. They don't listen to him. Throw him out and elect Jim Justice, your next U.S. Senator from West Virginia. That's my advice. Also this past week, Christopher Ray appearing on Fox News. Now, we have been talking a little bit about, uh, you know, why of all things the Department of Energy have like an opinion on the lab leak conspiracy <laughs> theory, not conspiracy theory, but the theory of the lab leak on COVID. And you have these different departments of the government kind of taking different positions and with full confidence, medium confidence, low confidence, you know, <laughs> porridge is here and the chair is there. But then what it boils down to is the FBI. The FBI are, are the people that the Energy Department was following their lead. And that's when I set this up by listening to Christopher Ray explaining the fact that the FBI has – this is what they do. This is what they investigate, and they have the people in place, and it's sort of like the way it all uh, panned out. Uh, the FBI has for quite some time now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. Let me step back for a second. You know, The FBI has – folks, agents, professionals, analysts, virologists, microbiologists, etc., who focus specifically on the dangers of biological threats, which include things like novel viruses like COVID, uh, and the concerns that they're in the wrong hands, some bad guys, a hostile nation state, a terrorist, a criminal, the threats that those could pose. So here you're talking about a potential leak from a Chinese government-controlled lab that killed millions of Americans. And that's precisely what that capability uh, was designed for. I should add that, uh, that our work related to this continues. 
and there are not a whole lot of details I can share that aren't are classified, I will just make the observation that the Chinese government seems to me has been doing its best to try to thwart and obfuscate uh, the work here, the work that we're doing, the work that our U.S. government and, and close foreign partners are doing, um, and that's unfortunate for everybody. Jared, I thought that this was a fringe conspiracy theory. Yeah, I always think back to the John Stewart was on Stephen Colbert's show like two years ago, and he said if there was like an outbreak of chocolatey goodness in Hershey, Pennsylvania, we wouldn't be like, oh, what happened here? <laughs> the Wuhan Institute of Virology, Virology which actually studies coronavirus, which studies what the corona, yeah. you know, <laughs> viruses was right there when this started. And so it was reasonable to not only speculate, but that there was some evidence or something that this is where this came from. And vindicated are many, both in the media and you know, uh, writers or, or podcasters, commenters, the, the amount of people who were banned or shunned or, or whatever for daring to even just sort of suggest this. Tom Cotton being one of these who you know was out front on this of saying, Hey, again, there's a there's an institute right there that's looking at these things. Maybe, maybe there's something here. And the sort of veracity at which you know that was that was racist or that was, you know, whatever ism that the the left came up with. And uh, yeah, vindicated first by the Department of Energy. Again, why? Who knows? <laughs> but now by the FBI, and of course, everybody has practically followed suit, except you know some in the media who are still saying. Whoa! You know who knows. So yeah, I mean, it is a total vindication, I think, for a lot of folks. Scott, where does it, where does this leave? Do, do, do folks actually begin to recalibrate already, or are there mea culpas here? Because obviously, this is not the only example of following the the groupthink or the you know don't stray from the from the official line here, or you're going to be you know slapped down. There were, there are were quite a few things that are happening throughout this entire COVID pandemic that uh, the that this is one area where perhaps we're kind of doing some revisionist history. What about the other ones? Well, I mean, think about all the dominoes that have fallen. Um, the mask domino, mm -hmm. you know, that, that was really the, you know, that was the left's MAGA hat, right? That was their, like, the mask was their MAGA hat. But they claimed, hey, it works. The science says it. What now? What now? What do we know? No measurable impact. But plenty of measurable negative outcomes, especially on school kids. So there's one domino. How about the next one? Lockdowns. Now, the left was fully committed to the lockdown policy. There, there are still people today that would love to lock down parts of society. Now, what do we know? Lockdowns had no measurable impact, but had plenty, plenty of negative economic and social consequences. There's another domino. How about on... Oh, I don't know, the effectiveness of the shot versus natural immunity. Natural immunity, you weren't allowed to talk about that early on. Remember, early on when people got COVID, you know, there were a lot of folks saying, well, if I have it, then I have the antibodies. Oh, no, that, that doesn't count. You still have to get the shot. That'll be far more effective. Now, what do we know? The most recent studies indicate that natural immunity is far more uh, impactful than the shot. And now, of course, we get this on the lab leak, I, I do find it puzzling how many people are so dug in on this. You know, even Colbert the other night, who was who was just mentioned, you know, he was making fun of the energy department for even looking into this. And I, it's it's I don't why are you so dug in? Why is it that you'll just accept the 
the facts and the intelligence here. Uh, and, and I can only surmise that it just has to do with people being broken over Trump that because he was the first person that suggested the lab leak. Now, you know, we have to it's, do everything we can do to disprove it, it I suppose. I that's I, the only thing I can I can imagine. It's a religion to some of these people and they, they have to hold on to it because when you shake that ground view or worldview, then they've got nothing left. Donald Trump is the common denominator. Donald Trump, as you said, Scott, broke a lot of people, people who otherwise had exhibited an ability to discern, process, think for themselves. They surrendered that fact-gathering analysis to emotion, to narrative, and to political expediency. And that goes not only for the people who rejected everything that Donald Trump had to say, but also for the people who accepted everything Donald Trump had to say, however outrageous or exaggerated he was, because he was Donald Trump. Donald Trump broke people. And there are a few people who I think tried to exist somewhere in the middle or not necessarily cave to the Donald Trump effect. But those people were widely kind of disregarded. You had to pick a side. With Donald Trump, you had to say, I'm all in or I'm all against. And where does that leave the people who are just trying to live in the normal, live in the middle? And that's, I think, a lot of what we're trying to do here. And, and Joe, your question was, wh- wh- where's the mea culpa? Who, who's supposed to be out there? I think I'll speak for myself, but I, I would be shocked if you guys didn't agree. We're all waiting to hear from Dr. Fauci. We're all waiting. Yeah. The guy who, who d- never denied an interview, who was on every show, every magazine cover, saying all of the things that, that Scott just laid out. It's the time. It is, it, it is remarkable when you consider all the pillars that we were told we had to hang on to during this entire period. And, uh, it, it, I mean, everything we were told turned out to be at least partially wrong. <laughs> I mean, everything right. we were told, uh, and, I, and I'm being generous. Uh, and I tell you, you know, institutions were already weak in this country, you know, confidence in institutions and, and media and corporations and government. Now, after all this, if you just sit back and consider everything we were told was at least partially wrong. I, I mean, it, it, when we have another emergency, if you were living near the train derailment in Ohio, would you believe a word you were hearing right now? I mean, I, and again, maybe everything they're being told is true, but you'd have good reason to question everything you're hearing, given how wrong our you know supposed elite experts were on this very major issue. To your point, Scott, and your friend Aaron Burnett on your network CNN on Tuesday night interviewing a gentleman named David Fife. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State. And he was we talked he was talking to her about why the health leaders and experts disregarded this Wuhan lab leak. It's a it's a really it's a it's a grim and, and, and rather sad failure. And it says certain things about um, the public health response that we had uh, as a government and as a academic and expert communities. It also says certain things about our posture toward China. We should have been from the very beginning a lot more careful, deliberate. Uh, and even, frankly, suspicious of the things that we heard from Chinese authorities. But many U.S. officials and U.S. experts weren't that way. Getting China right is extremely important uh, to future mm. pandemic risk and to our national security. And this was uh, not an impressive case, unfortunately. I think pretty well said, Scott. I mean, that's got to kind of, you know, the one thing Donald Trump certainly is, is an effect there as far as where you stand on him, but also the fact that how China has also kind of held people captive. Well, you, you look at, at what they did, uh, obviously, 
they they bought the WHO, mm-hmm. and the WHO during this has com- been a complete disgrace. But I also think that some of this is inward for us, and, and I'll go back to the topic we started with, and this is this woke radicalism did not permit anybody on the American left from saying what we all knew to be true, <laughs> that, that at some level here, China, the Chinese government, are bad actors. And they're not to be trusted, but but to say that, you remember when Trump started calling it the China virus, and they went crazy, and he said, "Well, it comes from China. What well, you know? What else would we call it?" But they're so captive to this woke ideology where the only issues they consider are race, number one, and everything else, you know, two through a thousand. That 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 it was clouding their judgment about. Um, what was going on in Wuhan, what the Chinese government was doing, and and uh, and what was clearly happening in our world. And it, it really makes me fear for the future because they are our number one geopolitical foe right now. And if we do wind up in conflict with them beyond what we already are, I wonder how many people in this country are going to be committed to American superiority in that conflict, or are they going to remain captive to the sort of this radical woke worldview that doesn't permit you to have an adversary of a different race. I mean, that, that's all this really was. Was, was I mean, if, if you raised the lab leak theory, you were called racist. If you called it the China virus, you were called racist. I mean, everything you did in this, if it didn't adhere to what the left had to say, uh, ended up with you being called a racist, did it not? I mean, it, it's, it's pretty troubling when you consider what all the evidence said, but then uh, that was disregarded, you know, for one reason. Yeah, Scott, you mentioned the infiltration of the the wokeness in all these institutions. This we, there's books and you know whatever about this, but one of the things they go after is language, right? One one of the things they the first things they try to sort of destroy or manipulate is language, and so you can see how the connection between daring to call it the Wuhan flu then makes a policy to close the borders from China racist, yeah, because it doesn't fit their expected language or the language of of the woke and thus the policy that's sort of tied to it could never happen anything that comes from that sort of ideology must be racist and so anything that was that was critical that came from the man who dared to call it the china virus or the wuhan flu which i mean think of the lyme disease all these other things that are named from from where they come from uh that's their sort of manipulation of language, right? They're, they do this with books. And we talked about Roald Dahl last right. week, right? The, the manipulation of language is a big part of what the woke left is trying to do. And, you know, to your point, Trump broke the brains of these people. So the man who calls it the Wuhan flu, any policy he permits must be racist. And it, it led to just tremendous failure. But then when Joe Biden shut down travel from China or made him go through an extra quarantine like a year ago, no one said yeah. a word about it. Yeah. This, and briefly, it doesn't mean that Donald Trump hasn't said racist things right. about oh, yeah. Asian people, and that's and it's it's, it's deplorable. Okay, mm. to to borrow a word. <laughs> <laughs> but that said, but it doesn't mean that by him correctly identifying or at least uh, uh, suspecting China of being involved with this is you know should be that automatically then removes it from consideration yeah. because he's somehow affiliated with it. By the way, and, and if I could go one more soundbite if we can from David Fife because it frightened me. Uh, part of this is we talked about okay what happened in the in the past why does it matter why does it matter why does this Wuhan virology situation matter in the first place if you combined for example the infectiousness of COVID 
with the deadliness of the SARS-1 virus that uh, created a limited pandemic out of China 20 years ago, you would have not the COVID pandemic that we've just suffered through, which was catastrophic, but really only up to a point. You know, it, it, it hit vulnerable populations very badly, but it was not deadly to many other segments of the global population. If you combined the deadliness we had 20 years ago with the infectiousness that we've had from COVID, which is the kind of combination that these laboratory experiments seek to produce, you could have a future pandemic that actually threatens the entire species, which is why taking this possibility seriously is so important. And Scott, it's not like China can be trusted to take care, good care of these things, and they're not going to be uh, you know, wild, wild west there in terms of how they're you know, even sharing information with the rest of the world. Oh, well, look, we're never going to fully, I mean, my guess is it'll be a while if we ever know fully what happened because they lie, Mm -hmm. they cover things up, they're not transparent, they don't play well with others, they don't play within the sort of the boundaries of the international norms that we set up and try to abide by, you know, in the West and throughout the the Western world. They just won't. They, They won't. They can't. And... Um, they, I guess they never will. Uh, and so, no, trustworthiness when it comes to this topic or any topic, give me a break. We have to deal with them. Uh, obviously, we're, we're locked in economically with them in, in certain ways. And, uh, but there's a looming military situation with them in Taiwan that we're going to have to deal with someday, I, I fear. Uh, and then the ongoing issues that they present of just being such a big player in the global community who are completely and totally unwilling to be honest with the rest of the world, it's, it is frightening. You said that. It's frightening. One more follow-up, if I can, uh, from this conversation, because my algorithms popped up in my looking through the different news coverage this past week of this lab leak fringe conspiracy theory, <laughs> theory suddenly becoming uh, having, having some real uh, – veracity to it, to borrow your word, uh, uh, Jared, was there's a, there's a podcast or a YouTube show called The Young Turks. It's a, a popular among some of the liberal folks. And I just thought the exchange here between the hosts was was priceless. Beginning, uh, people swore up and down that it was natural and not from a lab. We'll get back to that in a second. Actually, can we address that right now? Yeah. Because... One thing that's become increasingly clear to me, especially over the last year, is that I don't know who to trust. Yeah. Right? I certainly don't trust reporters mm-hmm. because reporters treated this in initially as if it was nothing more than a crazy unhinged conspiracy theory. Yeah. So who do you trust, right? You can't trust the legacy media outlets because that was their narrative. Right-wing media, you know, tends to go in the direction of it was definitely a lab leak. But they have their own biases. So what do you trust? Yeah. Who do you trust? Even the intelligence community in the United States is divided on this issue. And it's not just about the coronavirus pandemic, guys. It's about every single political issue. I don't know who to trust. Welcome to the conversation. <laughs> she just came up with this. I don't know who that was who was speaking. But it's like we have been talking about this on this show throughout the conservative movement for years Welcome to the conversation. Glad it, you're here. It is hilarious for her to go. I don't know who to trust. One side lied to me and one side was correct. <laughs> I don't know who to trust. It's like, hold on. Wait, no, I know who you should My trust. World the side who was right. <laughs> it's, it's insane. Scott. It, it's, it's, uh, it, it's interesting that it, she was even still straining 
if you if you listen carefully, she was still straining to leave open the idea that maybe, just maybe, uh, it was a bat who sneezed into someone's <laughs> soup or whatever. Right? Uh, because she said, well, the, the intelligence agencies are divided. They're not really divided. You've got the FBI with a fairly high degree of certainty that it was a lab leak. Now you've got the energy department with a, you know, it says low confidence interval. But I don't think, I don't really think there's anybody out there who's still holding firm to the, uh, you know, it was a it was a rancid bat or whatever, and yet, yet in her, you know, you can still hear her straining to bit. Well, maybe, maybe <laughs> the ball will bounce back over the net here. I don't know. <laughs> Welcome to the conversation, as Kevin said. Speaking of conversations, Scott, I'm not saying that you have inside information on the Biden White House, but you served in the George W. Bush White House. I am curious about the different cabinet secretaries, different you know, different departments, and on this, and what do you think that conversation is like? among the administration officials when you have these conflicting narratives coming out? Is there someone trying to get that under control? Is the chief of staff saying, hold on, stop talking? Or are these people independent enough that you have to just kind of let it happen? Good question. I mean, in a perfect world, you would have some coordinated answer from your government. But in this case, I think the Wall Street Journal somehow obtained the Energy Department report. I got the feeling it had leaked or uh, you know they had uncovered it somehow. So I don't, I don't think it was issued as though it were being done in a, in a coordinated or, or planned fashion. Uh, I also have a feeling that in this particular White House, um, there are people who are so radical and so captured by this ideology uh, that, that they are really unwilling to let information that's contrary to that radicalism see the light of day. And so, you know, thank God for a reporter who's able to uncover it. Otherwise, we wouldn't know about it. Um, you know, the white, this, this, they lie all the time, okay? They lie about little things. They lie about large things. Um, and, uh, you know, th- this intelligence is obviously contrary to their ideology. And so it, it strikes me that uh, I'd be shocked if there weren't some effort internally to try to keep this, under wraps for as long as possible. So the American people didn't get the information they needed to come to this conclusion that we're coming to tonight, which is that everything they said about COVID turned out to basically be wrong. The good news is that the president is leading the way in terms of being able to be fully transparent, for instance, in issues of his prior health care. She'd come in and do things that I don't think you learn in medical school, nursing school. She'd whisper in my ear. I didn't, couldn't understand her. She'd whisper. She'd lean down. She'd actually breathe on me to make sure that I was, that there was a connection, a human connection. She even went home and brought back her pillow named Pearl Nelson, military. Ugh. Scott? Bye. First of all, I don't know if you guys saw it on Twitter, but Twitter added one of those, like, yeah. context <laughs> notes. And I guess people were thinking that maybe this was like deep faked audio or somehow made like it was it was not true. And then the note was like, no, this is raw, unedited footage of Joe Biden talking about his uh, his nurse or whatever. I I don't know, man. This is I mean, look, he goes on a lot of strange asides and and rants. This was this was a weird one. When I I saw this and listened to it, I I had to hit it a couple of times because I. (laughs) I wasn't quite sure what I just heard. And uh, Nurse Pearl, I don't know. Watch out for her. I mean, <laughs> it's like Nurse Pearl, Corn Pop, the Amtrak conductor, 
Who was the, I mean, there's like who a, did he drive there's like the a, big rig with? Yeah, uh, and then the the Puerto Ricans that lived in his neighborhood in Delaware. Like, there's like a whole cast of characters <laughs> in in Joe, all in in his Joe head. Biden world. That that man. I think if you wrote a play and put all these people in a play, it'd be quite entertaining. But here's the, actually the common thread b- between our previous conversation and this one about groupthink, and sort of the, Joe Biden is someone who he can convince himself of these the, of, of these truths of these narratives, and and, yeah. the, and then the whole world kind of joins in. Big Mama you, was the, <laughs> the eighteen So and I, it was you and I, Scott, were talking off the air or off, you know, this just in a conversation this past week. I was just talking about the trying to take on groupthink. The last time this happened to me on Twitter, at least, which is a dangerous place to take on groupthink, was prior to the twenty twenty election, when I was concerned about this this ongoing state of emergency. And how they're changing all the election rules, and I just—I've been someone all of my life who I believe in the chain of custody of a ballot. And all I said on there was, "It's it, an election is going to be more fair, and you're going to have more confidence in it if you know that the people who are going in to vote is that the the ballot is in a controlled environment. You go to a ballot place, you're able to cast a secret ballot, you're able to put it into the box, and and then you're done. But I got hammered. I mean, it was a situation <laughs> where it's like, what evidence do you have? Of of this of election fraud going on, I'm, I'm saying all I'm saying is in the same way as like in China that it 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 just stands to reason that it's possible for this virus to escape from the Wuhan virology lab. I'm saying it stands to reason that if you have a ballot that's staying in the same room, you're going to have less influence there. It just it's, it's reminded me of you my know what personal. you needed was an election observer like Stacey Abrams. Yes, yes, yes. Where is she? Was it Nigeria? Yeah, she she. I, I don't know who tapped her or why she thought one of America's greatest election deniers needed to be overseeing other elections. Um, but she was there praising how long the lines were because it was so that good. Was thing. The, it was the most that was the craziest thing. It's like everybody in Georgia is whining about, you know, if you have to stand in line more than 30 seconds without getting, you know, a case of water, it's like, you know, <laughs> it's like a, you know, a human rights violation. And all of a sudden she's in Africa saying, look at these long lines. This is the great, greatest thing I've ever seen. Speaking <laughs> of elections, elections, Scott, the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, will not be returning to office. Uh, this very crowded primary there. But of course, a primary challenge in the first place for the uh, mm. sitting incumbent. What does this tell you overall? I mean, what kind of every big election there is, whether it's a off year election like in Kentucky with the governor's race this fall, maybe a big city election like this. Is there anything that this says nationally that we should be paying attention here? Yeah, I mean, I think there's really one sort of complex issue that it that it uncovers, and that's that people don't really like being murdered every time they walk <laughs> out of their house. I mean, I mean that. You know, this this was a public safety uh, thing in Chicago, I think. Uh, and obviously, it's uh, Chicago is devolved into this violent, uh, terribly violent place. And uh, she paid for it. I think, uh, you know, there were other issues along the way. Uh, the two people that moved on in the uh, in the runoff, one was endorsed by the police union, which was, I, I thought, quite interesting. Um, uh, and then two. The other was, I think, endorsed by the teachers' union. So it's really be a battle of the unions uh, there in a Democrat-controlled town. But you get the feeling that the uh, public safety issue was was really top of mind for folks. And you know, there, there's been a few cities in America that have just become synonymous with uh, violence to the point where where people don't want to leave their homes, and and that's one of them, which is a shame given how how great of a town it really is. Yeah, we saw this with Eric Adams, too, who's a firm believer in broken windows policing. Uh, what does that mean? 
gosh, can we get James Q. Wilson on the line? Uh, that if you, I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't, I don't <laughs> want to wrap this up. What is what, what is what is what is what is happening right now? I don't know what anything. Well, uh, welcome to happening. Jared's TED Talk. Well, You're about to okay. have 20 minutes <laughs> on it. You know, believing in the idea that police should be out on the streets and that they should be policing vagrancy and that they should be yeah, policing okay. homelessness okay. and all these sorts. Policing of things. follows I crime. Just, I need and, a little context. And, I'm sorry. Uh, it, Eric Adams what, is the mayor of New York City, which is a city in the New, United States. Oh, yeah, there, was a, there was a great, I think it was a New York Post uh, front page, and Eric Adams said, like, broken windows policing is back or something like that. But, I got you. Again, a lot of these mayors have embraced these ideas of just letting criminals out of jail, ending things like the ability to you know have police chases or go after carjacking victims or anything. I mean, really, really radical ideas. And, uh, again, it both shows in the numbers, but in the public perception, feeling that crime is up. Like, people feel it and see it more. Uh, things, you know, just from drug sales on the street corner to, you know, homicides, which is, you know, really the worst of, of the worst. Uh, and so I think people are revolting. I don't think any of these candidates we would vote for, but they're better on the issue of crime, which for people is, is becoming a huge issue, uh, you know, one of these top three issues. And so it would be interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, and in some of these races over the next couple of years, I think it's been a really long time since an incumbent mayor of Chicago lost. And she didn't just uh, lose. I mean, it, forty something years. Or she something didn't like just that. lose. She came in third. Yeah, yeah. She didn't even um, make the so, runoff. So when you consider that you know we have an incumbent in a race like this, that it's it's kind of a referendum on that incumbent. I mean, that's how bad it's gotten. They don't turn out their incumbent mayors uh, very often in in Chicago. And uh, for her to finish third in a in a race like that, it's it's pretty remarkable. It shows just how unhappy people are. I did a a panel on CNN the other night about Jackson, Mississippi, which actually per capita is the murder capital of the United States. Eighty eight uh, out of one thousand. I mean, it's crazy. I think the national average is like five out of one thousand. Eighty eight out of one thousand per capita. Uh, and you know, I, I said. That combined with the fact you can't drink the water there because of the mismanagement in the local water utility. Uh, they had a garbage dispute there. They couldn't get the garbage picked up for a while. I mean, that city has become almost uninhabitable, and they have a mayor down there who's like a Bernie Sanders socialist acolyte. They have a city council down there that's complete failure. You just start to look at, you know, Chicago now has had an election. You start to look at some of these urban areas that have just been a complete and total they're failed states. They're, you know, the dysfunction is complete. They're almost uninhabitable, you know, for people. Uh, in Jackson, it's a, it's a question about whether the water or the violent criminals who control the streets are going to kill you first. I mean, it's uninhabitable. And, uh, and you know, we've seen a few municipal elections in San Francisco throughout, you know, their prosecutor and obviously the Chicago results now. You just you start to wonder, like, people who live in these cities, at some point enough is enough. St. Louis, I saw the uh, governor, I guess, fire the attorney general fired the uh, local prosecutor there because of rampant crime and not being not being willing to take there, it on. There was a video on Twitter this week that? of somebody just getting shot in broad daylight right. in the street, a homeless man. How about how about the Michigan State shooting? I don't think we talked about this. Um, you know, the, the person who did the shooting on campus, which, by the way, that story's disappeared all of a sudden. I, I don't know where that went. That was a big deal for about 48 hours. And now we, we just seem to have forgotten about it. But that guy had had a gun charge that should have been a felony, and it was busted down to a misdemeanor by the local prosecutor. Uh, and because of that, he was then able to go buy a gun and commit the crime at Michigan State. Had the prosecutor charged him with a felony, he might have even still been in jail at the time the shooting was committed. Again, wokeism, 
infecting every area of our culture, even on something as simple as, hey, you commit a felony, you should do the time for it. It gets busted down and all of a sudden another crime gets committed. You know who commits violent crimes in this country are people who have committed other violent crimes and felonies. That's who that's who are that's the truly dangerous people. And then you have these prosecutors who are dedicated to keeping them on the street. It's outrageous. Reminds me of the Washington, D.C. Uh, criminal code changes that were passed by that city council that would reduce penalties for some violent crimes and including like robberies and carjackings. Now, I guess the Senate is. Involved. It was so bad. Even the D.C. mayor vetoed it. She said. 95% of this is fine, but the other 5% goes too far. Luckily, uh, the Congress has oversight of, of that city a little bit. So I think the House has already voted to overturn it, and now it's up to the Senate again. This could be Joe Biden's second veto if they get one more Senate Democrat to vote with Republicans. Yeah, to Kevin's point, right? Like, even the mayor was like, this is, yeah, I don't know about this here. And again, there's there's certainly, like, the political ramifications that we're seeing with, with Lori Lightfoot. But, I mean, again, this is... Five years ago, you can't imagine a Democrat embracing something like defund the police or embracing this sort of, these sort of "quote unquote" bail reform measures or the the lessening of penalties for what are you know now non carjacking is now like a nonviolent crime in some of these places. Which, ask somebody who's been carjacked if they felt like it was violent, right? I mean, it, it, it this wokeness, this really radical left ideology, is infiltrating so many of these cities and so many of these. Uh, you know, elected officials who used to be kind of moderate Democrats. It's crazy what some of these ideas are now mainstream. Did, did, did I read correctly that the carjackings have now gotten so bad in Washington, D.C., that the answer to this was they're making. Do you guys remember the, the infomercial for the club? You remember this? Basically, it's like a bar you put across your steering wheel. Oh, yeah. yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So if you like Google this, like I think they're handing out the club in Washington, D.C., and if you have a certain kind of car, like, they'll give you yeah. the club for free. But problem is, that's, how, that's how bad the problem is. is. What if you're driving it at the time? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of carjackings happen when people violently jerk someone out of the car yeah. at gunpoint and then, you know, throw them to the ground, and then they take off with the baby in the back seat. This is what happens. Mm-hmm. So the club... Yeah, I mean... <laughs> the club... You, it, you, it might work to I knock mean, him over the head, but that's, that's about it. I mean, I mean, but how would you like to wake up knowing that you live in a city that's been that's that's been forced to essentially hand out free the clubs? I mean, that's how likely it is they think your car is going to be stolen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just it's it's again it's uninhabitable. No one wants to live in a place like that where essentially violent criminals are in control of the streets and therefore in control of your quality of life. Who wants to live there? Scott, is there a candidate for on the Republican side? Because we already talked about Donald Trump breaking the country and breaking people's you know, mindsets and not being able to think clearly about things. So him aside, is there a candidate who can capitalize on this? Is there someone who can take us back to the center and just answer things in a normal way to say, I believe in violent criminals being put behind bars. I believe in... In, what a radical in, in, idea. Yeah, <laughs> I believe, no, I'm just saying, but yeah, these are, these yes, are things yeah, that I'm no. just saying that, that I believe that if, if we believe that China you know, infected the entire country, they should have some culpability and, and cooperate with us rather than just go along with whatever they say. Is there someone who can grab that mantle? Well, I think DeSantis is actually the person who seems most capable right now, mostly because uh, when he has identified people who've gone outside the boundaries of what he considers normal behavior, he's the one who's not just called it out, but he's picked a fight and he's finished the fight. And, uh, you know, I think the way this Republican 
primary is going to break down here is you're going to have a bunch of people who are all complaining about the same thing. Everybody can complain. But if I were in DeSantis' shoes, I would say, who can finish it? Who can finish the fight? Everybody can complain, but who can finish it? And I think given his track record in Florida, he seems like somebody who can do that. Uh, and, um, you know, we'll see if that's if that's where it goes. Uh, I, I hope it is, because I think what you're describing, there's a market for that. Yeah. Not just in the Republican primary, but in the it's in the country at large. It's, fr- it's frankly what Joe Biden promised he would be, as you said earlier. It's just yeah. like there was a return to normalcy. Just give us just four years of just normal people doing a normal deep things. Breath. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, and that's what. And of course, we haven't done that. I mean, Bert, as we as we heard in last week's podcast, and played some of the excerpts from Margaret Brennan's interview with Bernie Sanders, saying that basically Joe Biden became him. Yeah, yep. you know. So rather than what Joe Biden said he was, now Mitch McConnell would always tell you he was never all that. You know, centrist in the first place. It's just that he was. It was good marketing. You know? yeah. Well, <laughs> you know? pol- politics is about adjacency, and and you can you can cast yourself in a certain light, not based on your own record, but based on the record of those to whom you are adjacent. So, if you are adjacent to Bernie Sanders, well, you might look like a reasonable person. Or if you're adjacent to Donald Trump, you might look like you're more in control of your own, you know, <laughs> faculties and emotions. But when then those people fall away. And you're just left to your own devices and the spotlight is only on you and you alone. Uh, then we see who you really are. And what we've learned is, is who is Joe Biden really? I mean, he is he's essentially a husk. He's a whole. And he's been this husk has been filled with really the worst ideas of the radical left because he doesn't. I, I just if you look at the arc of his life, he clearly has no core values himself. He just is whatever he thinks he has to be in the moment to win an election or, or for some political expediency. And he did that. Uh, um, in, in 2020 and, and he's governed that way. Uh, and so for that reason, you really can't believe anything he says because nothing he says is based on any core value. It's just based on whatever he thinks he has to say at the time. It's really the worst kind of politician. Yeah. I mean, speaking of potential presidential candidates, uh, I mean, if Joe Biden truly cared about this issue, the, the crime issue, uh, would have worked with Tim Scott to pass his, you know, police Mm -hmm. reform bill that would have done a lot of things. Wasn't that filibustered? Yes. Democrats. Yes. Yeah. Stop that. <laughs> U- yeah. Using the Jim Crow filibuster. Right, you'll right. remember. You know, but these are the sort of things, right? I mean, Biden gets a lot of crap for the 94 crime bill, but you know that there were some good things in there that helped crack down on crime. Maybe it went too far on, on certain issues, but if he truly cared about this would have worked with Democrats on what was a really moderate piece of legislation that would have improved police accountability and training and sent more money for uh, things like body cameras and uh, still done things like uh, remove some of the, the sort of you know knees on necks type stuff that they wanted to get rid of. If he truly was the moderate, would have showed up day one and said, "We're going to do. I'm going to do everything I can to work with Democrats in the Senate to pass Tim Scott's policing reform bill." But you know, both the sort of white woke ideology invading, uh, you know, his administration and a lot of Senate Democrats, those things just end up dying. Flyover country with Scott Jennings with Kevin Grout. Jared Crawford, Scott Jennings, and Joe Arnold. Sean Southerd off this week. Sean, hopefully you're you're downloading and listening. But in the main, and you, you can you can email us your scene red herd, Sean, and rating us and sharing and, with your friends, exactly, so. doing all those things. Speaking of scene red herd, Scott, you got anything for us this week? I do, uh, and since I'm coming to you live uh, from Florida, I'm here for spring training, uh, wearing my cardinal shirt while we uh while we uh, record this podcast on a wednesday night i've seen a few games already and i've been experiencing the new major league baseball rule changes mm. uh, which includes a pitch clock 
to keep the game moving along. And I have to say, it has. It's just, please fan yeah, Joe Arnold. He's not saying the, the discussion is he's going to faint. But the pitch clock has been very noticeable. Uh, the lack of shifting, uh, you know, we've gotten to a place in baseball where nearly every bat showed, you know, three infielders on one side of the diamond and one on the other. That's gone. Very noticeable. The bases are slightly larger, and I do say that if you're watching closely, you can kind of tell that they're a little bit larger. Um, and then you can't throw over to first base more than a couple of times before it, it becomes a balk if you fail in the third time. But the really most noticeable thing is the pitch clock. And if nobody's on base, the pitcher has 15 seconds. And I've seen uh, four games so far, and already I've seen numerous violations of the pitch clock. And so if the pitcher violates it, it's a ball. And if the batter doesn't get in the batter's box and look at the pitcher and, and sort of be ready to hit, I think it's eight seconds is the mark on that, then it's a strike. And so um, uh, every game I've seen except for one has been under three hours. Uh, there was a game today. I think the Reds and the A's played a game today that ended in a 14-14 tie, and it was played in three hours and 26 minutes. And so this pitch clock, even in high offensive situations, has really uh, really moved the game along. So if you're someone who thought baseball was taking too long, you're going to like this. I have to say, being in, I was skeptical of it, but being in the park and watching it, uh, it hasn't bothered me. And in fact, I, to be candid, I know this is going to put our friendship on the rocks, Joe. <laughs> I kind of like it. I, I kind of like it. I mean, it, it's 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 almost like a, I think you said this to me the other day. It's it's kind of like a a play clock for football. Uh, it's like the same concept, and and you got to get the you got to get the snap off, and now you got to get the pitch off. And the rebuttal from Joe. <laughs> It's a genetic mutation and of a, of a great thing, and it's it's gone forever. And I'll have to stop shaking my fist at the clouds because it's. I'll remember the game the way it was supposed to be played. Now that said, <laughs> I do believe in market forces, and I think ultimately those mm-hmm. things make a difference. And rather than having to go in and and you know do surgery on this and change the actual fiber of it, you know, the thing about a, a well paced game and great pitchers is that that offense is going to be on their toes and ready to go, and they're going to play better behind you if you're, if you're playing on that same pace that you're describing. Unfortunately, that, you know, that, that has not been encouraged, and, and, if, and I agree, games got too plotting, and there was you know, too much you know, back and forth, and maybe because every pitch, as, as, and I'm not saying baseball players shouldn't be paid a good amount of money, but when every pitch becomes sort of like consequential to my entire life and career earnings, then maybe you're going to take a little bit more time with that pitch. So I, I don't disagree with the concept of trying to speed things along. I think the umpires already had discretion before this pitch clock happened where they could have actually penalized someone for that. But, ha- but putting this clock in there, this is the one major sport up until now that did not have a clock. And it was, there was something magical about that. And, and unfortunately, it's gone. And, but I actually now, Scott, I th- I'm, I'm going to go the opposite direction. I believe now that it's ruined, now that the DH <laughs> is in the National League and we've banned the shift because baseball players are pansies, I guess now, and they, they and they and they oh I can't hit I can't hit that direction, so you better change the rules for me. I think at this point, let's just go ahead and go all in. I believe that I mean, what injury do you hear the most about in in baseball? It's it's pitchers, right? Tommy it's John. it's Tommy John. That is awful that we're putting these people under the knife to be able to continue their careers. I think that baseball should adopt a universal pitcher called a pitching machine. It should be in every ballpark, and the players should be able then to calibrate it to say, I want the pitch to be here, inside fastball. And that, should, and that way it's, it's, it's fair. It's more fair if everyone had the same pitch. And beyond that, 
Let's go. Let's go beyond. Let's go beyond. Uh, let's, hold let, on. Hold on. Can I? What? Can I? Can I just? Can I just say a what? quick word to our listeners? Yes. Um, we're we're we are probably going to have another two to two and a half hours. <laughs> Buckle up. Of Joe ranting. So if you want to go ahead and just delete this episode now that you've heard the actual show part, you can. If you want to stick with Joe for the next couple hours. Be my guest. Kevin, Jared, and I will be at the bar. You know to join us there. <laughs> okay. The second thing we should do <laughs> is... Is there now, a clock on this? Now that we've had the National League uh, adopt the, the DH, why do we even have any position player batting? We should have an offense and a defense. There are players who are great with gloves, and there are players who are great with, uh, with their bat. So let's, do, let's, let's follow the success of the NFL. You have one-way players. Why, why, should, why limit it to pitchers? I think nine DHs, nine <laughs> position players, a much. I mean, you could uh, tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> tell me if I'm wrong. Would the game not be? Wouldn't you have more excellence in each of those categories if you let people play to their specialties? Am I correct or not? Yeah, this is brilliant. There is no, uh, there is no uh, way you can dispute that. So I'm almost on board with it. Right. You're very convincing. So I'm, I'm the next bring commissioner. Bring back steroids. Yes. Bring back the juiced and cork bats. The juice balls. I don't see why bat. not. Yeah. Yeah. If, if if you allow a tendon to be replaced from your leg, whatever, into yeah. or from a cadaver, cadaver into your yeah. arm for for Tommy John, why not allow the other things? Let's do it all bionic and and pitching <laughs> machines. All right, Scott. <laughs> So you liked it, though, huh? <laughs> I did, actually. I will say, it, it, it forces you to, it's like, pay attention to the game. Like, I mean, because oh, it, it, it's Imagine relentless. That. I mean, it's relentless. It, it It's never, you know, it never slows down. There's no reprieve. And uh, um, I, I will tell you, uh, we keep calling it a pitching clock, and everybody's focused on the pitchers. Where I would get frustrated is on the hitters who were constantly shuffling around, stepping, stepping out, adjusting the seven or eight, you know, braces and body armor they had on. Uh, to me, it's it's as much of a hitting clock as anything, and it forces the batter to actually get in the batter's box and, and play the game. You know why? Uh, you you know, did have some pitchers that plotted around, but right. to me, there were a lot of hitters that were doing the same thing. Here's the reason why all this was made necessary. Because we we also got rid, we got way too soft on uh, hit-by-pitches. But the players who would take forever with their batting gloves, or they pay for it eventually. <laughs> and so I'm saying the hit by pitch and, and, and all the kind of stuff about that being put away with that's that's the reason why all this became necessary. All right, Kevin, what kind of secret hood do you <laughs> wow. have for me? Uh, this week was a very important anniversary. Uh, yes, yesterday was the 40th anniversary of the airing of the finale of MASH. Goodbye. Oh, oh no, I'm sorry. Farewell. Goodbye, farewell, farewell. amen. Amen, yeah. Uh, but it, but as far as like the, the helicopter shot and going away, was, right. that, was that goodbye or was it farewell on the on – the, uh, I'll think about it. Anyway, yeah, think about it. Yeah. Uh, it. It was a show I grew up watching with my dad. Obviously not live, but it was something that he uh, introduced to me when I was, I was young and uh, meant a lot to our family and still does. Um, big, big fan of it. So uh, 40 years since – Goodbye. Goodbye, yeah. yeah. 40 years since the, the farewell of MASH. I like that. Yeah. Jared? So I hate movies that are like overhyped, that you can't go anywhere without seeing the trailer, uh, that they go to the cons festival and get 45 minutes standing ovations, or they go to all these things and everybody, they have all these Oscar hypes and yada, yada, yada. So I held off watching Don't Worry Darling, the movie with Florence Pugh and Harry Styles. Have never heard of it. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Not oh, overhyped it here. All, it had all this hype. Uh, We've been too busy watching Cocaine Bear. It, uh, <laughs> that's true. I, th- I thought that's where he was <laughs> yeah, going. No. Um, which is another one of these, though. I feel like every time I scroll on Twitter, there's a new yeah. story or there's something like that. It always feels kind of like manufactured to me. 
But uh, for me, at least, Don't Worry Darling was one of these movies that I felt like I couldn't get away. There was some, like, on-set drama, too. You remember, like, Harry Styles allegedly spitting on Chris Pine? You don't remember this? Like, at the, I don't know who those people are. Chris Pine is... I don't know. He's in Star Trek. He's in the new Star Trek movies. Anyways, uh, I finally watched like William it. William Shatner? Yes, it's, yes, he, he plays William Shatner. Modern day William Shatter. <laughs> Anyways, I thought you guys would have known about this this movie, Don't Worry Darling, uh, but I guess I'm the only person who's ever heard of it. Uh, I watched it. I thought it was great, and usually I hate overhyped movies, and I always uh-huh. think like they end up stinking in the end, but I actually enjoyed it, um, and so that was my scene, uh, which I finally watched that this past weekend that's your movie recommendation yeah and so I'll, two I'll, thumbs up just don't tweet about uh, it i'll give it a thumb up it a wasn't thumb. like i'm not gonna put in my top 10 movies of all time um that's reserved for the town the departed and goodwill hunting um but no i thought it was good i so people who may have thought it was overhyped too i would i would recommend it Scott, as you know, I'm really kind of a technical genius. I do a lot of great <laughs> things with electronics. And so I recently, uh, by default, had my phone plugged in overnight and the Apple new iOS, whatever, downloaded on there. And I did not know about this until I saw it on the Twitter box. And that is, did you know that, that, that your Apple, if you go to your battery settings on your Apple, do you know about this? Apple, I read about it, but I haven't, look, I haven't looked at mine yet. Look at your battery battery health and charging. Go to your settings. Go to battery health and charging. Yeah. Go to the very bottom, and there it auto-selected for you. You're opting into clean energy charging. In your region, iPhone will try to reduce your carbon footprint by selectively charging when lower carbon emission electricity is available iPhone learns from your daily charging routine so it can reach full charge before you need to use it. But basically, they, they auto-selected this for you. Hmm. That and I'm just saying that in some parts of the country that might be a little bit more difficult than others. Do you have an iPhone? I do, but do you have automatic updates on? I do. I don't. So, you, so I don't a... think I have it. I, I have hey, it because I live in a normal just, place. <laughs> so more, more importantly, if you go to that setting you're talking about, it tells you what the maximum capacity of your battery is. Yeah. Yes. Mine is only mine is only ninety one percent. What is yours? Eighty six. Eighty. Eighty eight. You're, you oh, win. I'm the best. Of, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking out here. I was thinking 91 was terrible, but I mean, is that is that common for your battery to have yeah, like a? It says it my, has at a. This point, my, my phone's now. I think I'm at, I'm at a year and a half on this phone, so I guess I guess it's just wearing down a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So there's my hmm. there's my technical. By the way, so tune in next week for my next technical <laughs> gadgets with Joe. Change your, we'll teach with you how to machines. change your background on your phone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, Scott, thanks for joining us all the way from West Palm and braving the alligators to come out and talk to us. You have no idea how close I was to alligators today. It was absolutely incredible. Really just uh, beautiful. In the last calendar year, I've been all the way to the tippy-tip uh, northwest Alaska and all the way down to the tippy-tip southeast of Florida. So I feel like I've I've truly flown over the country while right, we've you, been doing this podcast. Johnny Cash, take us home. I've been everywhere. <laughs> oh, I thought it was Uncle Tippy Tip. <laughs> Thanks for listening. For the absent Sean Southerd, for Kevin Grout, Jared Crawford, and Scott Jennings, I'm Joe Arnold. Have a good week. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast.